Section 31 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tad Davis. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Masfen Roberts. Book 5, Chapters 24 to 32. Chapter 24. Internal dissensions arising from the conquest of VI. The year following the capture of VI had, for the six consular tribunes, two of the Publii Cornelii, namely Cassus and Scipio, Marcus Valerius Maximus, for the second time, Caesar Fabius Ambustus, for the third time, Lucius Furius Medellinus, for the fifth time, and Quintus Servilius, for the third time. The war against the Feliscans was allotted to the Cornelii, that against Capenae to Valerius and Servilius. They did not make any attempt to take cities, either by assault or investment, but confined themselves to ravaging the country and carrying off the property of the agriculturists. Not a single fruit tree, no produce whatever, was left on the land. These losses broke the resistance of the Capenates. They sued for peace, and it was granted them. Amongst the Feliscans, the war went on. In Rome, meanwhile, disturbances arose on various matters. In order to quiet them, it had been decided to plant a colony on the Volscian frontier, and the names of 3,000 Roman citizens were entered for it. Triumvirs appointed for the purpose had divided the land into lots of three and seven-twelfths ugra per man. This grant began to be looked upon with contempt. They regarded it as a sop offered to them to divert them from hoping for something better. Why, they asked, were Publians to be sent into banishment amongst the Volscians when the splendid city of Vii and the territory of the Veientines was within view, more fertile and more ample than the territory of Rome? Whether in respect of its situation or of the magnificence of its public and private buildings and its open spaces, they gave that city the preference over Rome. They even brought forward a proposal, which met with still more support after the capture of Rome by the Gauls, for migrating to Vi. They intended, however, that Vi should be inhabited by a portion of the plebs and a part of the Senate. They thought it a feasible project that two separate cities should be inhabited by the Roman people and form one state. In opposition to these proposals, the nobility went so far as to declare that they would sooner die before the eyes of the Roman people than that any of those schemes should be put to the vote. If, they argued, there was so much dissension in one city, what would there be in two? Could anyone possibly prefer a conquered to a conquering city and allow Vi to enjoy a greater good fortune after its capture than while it stood safe? It was possible that in the end they might be left behind in their native city by their fellow citizens, but no power on earth would compel them to abandon their native city and their fellow citizens in order to follow Titus Sicinius, the proposer of this measure, to Vi as its new founder, and so abandon Romulus, a god and the son of a god, the father and creator of the city of Rome. 
Chapter 25 This discussion was attended by disgraceful quarrels, for the Senate had drawn over a section of the tribunes of the plebs to their view, and the only thing that restrained the plebeians from offering personal violence was the use which the patricians made of their personal influence. Whenever shouts were raised to get up a brawl, the leaders of the Senate were the first to go into the crowd and tell them to vent their rage on them, to beat and kill them. The mob shrank from offering violence to men of their age and rank and distinction, and this feeling prevented them from attacking the other patricians. Camillus went about delivering harangues everywhere, and saying that it was no wonder that the citizens had gone mad, for though bound by a vow, they showed more anxiety about everything than about discharging their religious obligations. He would say nothing about the contribution, which was really a sacred offering rather than a tithe, and since each individual bound himself to a tenth, the state as such was free from the obligation. But his conscience would not allow him to keep silence about the assertion that the tenth only applied to movables, and that no mention was made of the city and its territory, which were also really included in the vow. As the Senate considered the question a difficult one to decide, they referred it to the pontiffs, and Camillus was invited to discuss it with them. They decided that of all that had belonged to the Veientines before the vow was uttered and had subsequently passed into the power of Rome, a tenth part was sacred to Apollo. Thus the city and territory came into the estimate. The money was drawn from the treasury, and the consular tribunes were commissioned to purchase gold with it. As there was not a sufficient supply, the matrons, after meeting to talk the matter over, made themselves by common consent responsible to the tribunes for the gold, and sent all their trinkets to the treasury. The Senate were in the highest degree grateful for this, and the tradition goes that in return for this munificence, the matrons had conferred upon them the honor of driving to sacred festivals and games in a carriage, and on holy days and workdays in a two-wheeled car. The gold received from each was appraised in order that the proper amount of money might be paid for it, and it was decided that a golden bowl should be made and carried to Delphi as a gift to Apollo. When the religious question no longer claimed their attention, the tribunes of the plebs renewed their agitation. The passions of the populace were aroused against all the leading men, most of all against Camillus. They said that by devoting the spoils of Vi to the state and to the gods, he had reduced them to nothing. They attacked the senators furiously in their absence. When they were present and confronted their rage, shame kept them silent. As soon as the plebeians saw that the matter would be carried over into the following year, they reappointed the supporters of the proposal as their tribunes. The patricians devoted themselves to securing the same support for those who had vetoed the proposal. Consequently, nearly all the same tribunes of the plebs were re-elected. Chapter 26. The Conquest of Filarii in the election of consular tribunes, the patricians succeeded by the utmost exertions in securing the return of Marcus Furius Camillus. They pretended that in view of the wars they were providing themselves with a general. Their real object was to get a man who would oppose the corrupt policy of the plebeian tribunes. His comrades in the tribuneship were Lucius Furius Medellinus, for the sixth time, 
Gaius Aemilius, Lucius Valerius Publicola, Spurius Postumius, and Publius Cornelius for the second time. At the beginning of the year, the tribunes of the plebs made no move until Camillus left for operations against the Feliscans, the theater of war assigned to him. This delay took the heart out of their agitation, whilst Camillus, the adversary whom they most dreaded, was gaining fresh glory amongst the Feliscans. At first the enemy kept within their walls, thinking this the safest course, but by devastating their fields and burning their farms, he compelled them to come outside their city. They were afraid to go very far, and fixed their camp about a mile away. The only thing which gave them any sense of security was the difficulty of approaching it, as all the country round was rough and broken, and the roads narrow in some parts, in others steep. Camillus, however, had gained information from a prisoner captured in the neighborhood and made him act as guide. After breaking up his camp in the dead of night, he showed himself at daybreak in a position considerably higher than the enemy. The Romans of the third line began to entrench. The rest of the army stood ready for battle. Note. The third line were veteran troops, generally acting as reserves, and their steadiness often restored a battle when the first and second lines had given way. End of note. When the enemy attempted to hinder the work of entrenchment, he defeated them and put them to flight, and such a panic seized the Feliscans that in their disorderly flight they were carried past their own camp, which was nearer to them, and made for their city. Many were killed and wounded before they could get inside their gates. The camp was taken, the booty sold, and the proceeds paid over to the questors, to the intense indignation of the soldiers." but they were overawed by the sternness of their general's discipline, and though they hated his firmness, at the same time they admired it. The city was now invested, and regular siege works were constructed. For some time the townsmen used to attack the Roman outposts whenever they saw an opportunity, and frequent skirmishes took place. Time went on, and hope inclined to neither side. Corn and other supplies had been previously collected, and the besieged were better provisioned than the besiegers. The task seemed likely to be as long as it had been at Vi, had not fortune given the Roman commander an opportunity of displaying that greatness of mind, which had already been proved in deeds of war, and so secured him an early victory. Chapter 27 it was the custom of the Feliscans to employ the same person as the master and also as the attendant of their children, and several boys used to be entrusted to one man's care, a custom which prevails in Greece at the present time. Naturally, the man who had the highest reputation for learning was appointed to instruct the children of the principal men. This man had started the practice in the time of peace, of taking the boys outside the gates for games and exercise, and he kept up the practice after the war had begun, taking them sometimes a shorter, sometimes a longer distance from the city gate. Seizing a favorable opportunity, he kept up the games and the conversations longer than usual, and went on till he was in the midst of the Roman outposts. He then took them into the camp and up to Camillus in the headquarters tent. There, he aggravated his villainous act by a still more villainous utterance. He had, he said, 
given Filarii into the hands of the Romans, since those boys whose fathers were at the head of affairs in the city were now placed in their power. On hearing this, Camillus replied, You, villain, have not come with your villainous offer to a nation or a commander like yourself. Between us and the Feliscans there is no fellowship based on a formal compact, as between man and man, but the fellowship which is based on natural instincts exists between us and will continue to do so. There are rights of war, as there are rights of peace, and we have learnt to wage our wars with justice no less than with courage. We do not use our weapons against those of an age which is spared even in the capture of cities, but against those who are armed as we are, and who, without any injury or provocation from us, attack the Roman camp at Veii. These men you, as far as you could, have vanquished by an unprecedented act of villainy. I shall vanquish them, as I vanquished Veii, by Roman arts, by courage and strategy and force of arms. He then ordered him to be stripped and his hands tied behind his back, and delivered him up to the boys to be taken back to Falerii, and gave them rods with which to scourge the traitor into the city. The people came in crowds to see the sight. The magistrates thereupon convened the Senate to discuss the extraordinary incident, and in the end such a revulsion of feeling took place that the very people who in the madness of their rage and hatred would almost sooner have shared the fate of Vi than obtained the peace which Capina enjoyed, now found themselves in company with the whole city asking for peace. The Roman sense of honor, the commander's love of justice, were in all men's mouths in the forum and in the senate, and in accordance with the universal wish, ambassadors were dispatched to Camillus in the camp, and with his sanction to the senate in Rome, to make the surrender of Falerii. On being introduced to the Senate, they are reported to have made the following speech. Senators, vanquished by you and your general through a victory which none, whether God or man, can censure, we surrender ourselves to you, for we think it better to live under your sway than under our own laws, and this is the greatest glory that a conqueror can attain. Through the issue of this war, two salutary precedents have been set for mankind. You have preferred the honor of a soldier to a victory which was in your hands. We, challenged by your good faith, have voluntarily given you that victory. We are at your disposal. Send men to receive our arms, to receive the hostages, to receive the city whose gates stand open to you. Never shall you have cause to complain of our loyalty, nor we of your rule." Thanks were accorded to Camillus both by the enemy and by his own countrymen. The Feliscans were ordered to supply the pay of the troops for that year, in order that the Roman people might be free from the war tax. After the peace was granted, the army was marched back to Rome. Chapter 28 After thus subduing the enemy by his justice and good faith, Camillus returned to the city invested with a much nobler glory than when white horses drew him through it in his triumph. The Senate could not withstand the delicate reproof of his silence, but at once proceeded to free him from his vow. Lucius Valerius, Lucius Sergius, and Aulus Manlius were appointed as a deputation to carry the golden bowl, made as a gift to Apollo, to Delphi, but the solitary warship in which they were sailing was captured by Liparian pirates not far from the Straits of Sicily and taken to the islands of Liparii. Piracy was regarded as a kind of state institution, and it was the custom for the government to distribute the plunder thus acquired. 
That year, the supreme magistracy was held by Timosithius, a man more akin to the Romans in character than to his own countrymen. As he himself reverenced the name and office of the ambassadors, the gift they had in charge, and the god to whom it was being sent, so he inspired the multitude who generally share the views of their ruler with a proper religious sense of their duty. The deputation were conducted to the state guesthouse, and from there sent on their way to Delphi with a protecting escort of ships. He then brought them back safe to Rome. Friendly relations were established with him on the part of the state, and presents bestowed upon him. War with the Iqui During this year there was war with the Iqui, of so undecided a character that it was a matter of uncertainty, both in the armies themselves and in Rome, whether they were victorious or vanquished. The two consular tribunes, Gaius Aemilius and Spurius Postumius, were in command of the Roman army. At first they carried on joint operations. After the enemy had been routed in the field, they arranged that Aemilius should hold Verugo, whilst Postumius devastated their territory. Whilst he was marching somewhat carelessly after his success, with his men out of order, he was attacked by the Iqui, and such a panic ensued that his troops were driven to the nearest hills, and the alarm spread even to the other army at Verugo. After they had retreated to a safe position, Postumius summoned his men to assembly, and severely rebuked them for their panic and flight, and for having been routed by such a cowardly and easily defeated foe. With one voice the army exclaimed that his reproaches were deserved. They had, they confessed, behaved disgracefully, but they would themselves repair their fault. The enemy would not long have cause for rejoicing. They asked him to lead them at once against the enemy's camp. It was in full view down in the plain, and no punishment would be too severe if they failed to take it before nightfall. He commended their eagerness and ordered them to refresh themselves and to be ready by the fourth watch. The enemy, expecting the Romans to attempt a nocturnal flight from their hill, were posted to cut them off from the road leading to Verugo. The action commenced before dawn, but as there was a moon all night, the battle was as clearly visible as if it had been fought by day. The shouting reached Verugo, and they believed that the Roman camp was being attacked. This created such a panic that in spite of all the appeals of Aemilius in his efforts to restrain them, the garrison broke away and fled in scattered groups to Tusculum. Thence the rumor was carried to Rome that Postumius and his army were slain. As soon as the rising dawn had removed all apprehensions of a surprise, in case the pursuit was carried too far, Postumius rode down the ranks, demanding the fulfillment of their promise. The enthusiasm of the troops was so roused that the Iqui no longer withstood the attack. Then followed a slaughter of the fugitives, such as might be expected where men are actuated by rage even more than by courage. The army was destroyed. The doleful report from Tusculum and the groundless fears of the city were followed by a laurel dispatch from Postumius announcing the victory of Rome and the annihilation of the Iquan army. Note. The dispatch in which a victorious general announced his success was wrapped in a wreath of bay leaves. End of note. Chapter 29. Domestic Politics. 
As the agitation of the tribunes of the plebs had so far been without result, the plebeians exerted themselves to secure the continuance in office of the proposers of the land measure, whilst the patricians strove for the re-election of those who had vetoed it. The plebeians, however, carried the election, and the Senate, in revenge for this mortification, passed a resolution for the appointment of consuls, the magistracy which the plebs detested. After fifteen years, consuls were once more elected in the persons of Lucius Lucretius Flavus and Servius Sulpicius Camerinus. At the beginning of the year, as none of their college was disposed to interpose his veto, the tribunes were combined in a determined effort to carry their measure, while the consuls, for the same reason, offered a no less strenuous resistance. Whilst all the citizens were preoccupied with this struggle, the Aequi successfully attacked the Roman colony at Vitellia, which was situated in their territory. Most of the colonists were uninjured, for the fact of its treacherous capture taking place in the night gave them the chance of escaping in the opposite direction from the enemy and reaching Rome. That field of operations fell to Lucius Lucretius. He advanced against the enemy and defeated them in a regular engagement, and then came back victorious to Rome, where a still more serious contest awaited him. A day had been fixed for the prosecution of Aulus Virginius and Quintus Pomponius, who had been tribunes of the plebs two years previously. The Senate unanimously agreed that their honor was concerned in defending them, for no one brought any charge against them touching their private life or their public action. The only ground of indictment was that it was to please the Senate that they had exercised their veto. The influence of the Senate, however, was overborne by the angry temper of the plebeians, and a most vicious precedent was set by the condemnation of those innocent men to a fine of ten thousand asses each. The Senate were extremely distressed. Camillus openly accused the plebeians of treason in turning against their own magistrates because they did not see that through this iniquitous judgment they had taken from their tribunes the power of veto, and in depriving them of that had overthrown their power. They were deceived if they expected the Senate to put up with the absence of any restraint upon the license of that magistracy. If the violence of tribunes could not be met by the veto of tribunes, the Senate would find another weapon. He poured blame on the consuls also for having silently allowed the honor of the state to be compromised in the case of tribunes who had followed the instructions of the Senate. By openly repeating these charges, he embittered the feeling of the populace more every day. Chapter 30 The Senate, on the other hand, he was perpetually inciting to oppose the measure. Note, that is, the proposal to make V.I. a second Rome. End of note. They must not, he said, go down to the forum when the day came for voting on it in any other temper than that of men who realized that they would have to fight for their hearths and altars, for the temples of the gods, and even for the soil on which they had been born. As for himself, if he dared to think of his own reputation when his country's existence was at stake, it would be indeed an honor to him that the city which he had taken should become a popular resort, that that memorial of his glory should give him daily delight, that he should have before his eyes the city which had been carried in his triumphal procession, 
and that all should tread in the track of his renown. Note. Livy is thinking here of the custom, at a later time, of carrying pictures or models of conquered towns in the triumphal procession. End of note. But he considered it an offense against heaven for a city to be repeopled after it had been deserted and abandoned by the gods, or for the Roman people to dwell on a soil enslaved and change the conquering country for a conquered one. Roused by these appeals of their leader, the senators, old and young, came down in a body to the forum when the proposal was being put to the vote. They dispersed among the tribes, and each taking his fellow tribesmen by the hand, implored them with tears not to desert the fatherland, for which they and their fathers had fought so bravely and so successfully. They pointed to the capital, the temple of Vesta, and the other divine temples round them, and besought them not to drive the Roman people as homeless exiles from their ancestral soil and their household gods into the city of their foes. They even went so far as to say that it were better that Vi had never been taken than that Rome should be deserted. As they were having recourse not to violence but to entreaties, and were interspersing their entreaties with frequent mention of the gods, it became for the majority of voters a religious question, and the measure was defeated by a majority of one tribe. The Senate were so delighted at their victory that on the following day a resolution was passed at the instance of the consuls that seven Ugera of the Veientine territory should be allotted to each plebeian, and not to the heads of families only. Account was taken of all the children in the house, that men might be willing to bring up children in the hope that they would receive their share. Chapter 31. Various Wars. This bounty soothed the feelings of the plebs, and no opposition was offered to the election of consuls. The two elected were Lucius Valerius Potitus and Marcus Manlius, who afterwards received the title of Capitolinus. They celebrated the great games which Marcus Furius had vowed when dictator in the Veientine War. In the same year, the temple of Queen Juno, which he had also vowed at the same time, was dedicated, and the tradition runs that this dedication excited great interest amongst the matrons, who were present in large numbers. An unimportant campaign was conducted against the Aequi on Algidus. The enemy were routed almost before they came to close quarters. Valerius had shown greater energy in following up the fugitives. He was accordingly decreed a triumph, Manlius, an ovation. In the same year, a new enemy appeared in the Volsinians, owing to famine and pestilence in the district round Rome, in consequence of excessive heat and drought, it was impossible for an army to march. This emboldened the Volsinians in conjunction with the Salpinates to make inroads upon Roman territory. Thereupon war was declared against the two states. Gaius Julius the censor died, and Marcus Cornelius was appointed in his place. This proceeding was afterwards regarded as an offense against religion, because it was during that lustrum that Rome was taken, and no one has ever since been appointed as censor in the room of one deceased. The consuls were attacked by the epidemic, so it was decided that the auspices should be taken afresh by an interrex. The consuls accordingly resigned office in compliance with the resolution of the Senate, and Marcus Furius Camillus was appointed interrex. 
he appointed Publius Cornelius Scipio as his successor, and Scipio appointed Lucius Valerius Potitus, the last named appointed six consular tribunes, so that if any of them became incapacitated through illness, there might still be a sufficiency of magistrates to administer the Republic. Chapter 32 These were Lucius Lucretius, Servius Sulpicius, Marcus Aemilius, Lucius Furius Medellinus for the seventh time, Agrippa Furius, and Gaius Aemilius for the second time. They entered upon office on the 1st of July. Lucius Lucretius and Gaius Aemilius were charged with the campaign against the Volsinians, Agrippa Furius and Servius Sulpicius with the one against the Salpinates. The first action took place with the Volsinians. An immense number of the enemy were engaged, but the fighting was by no means severe. Their line was scattered at the first shock. Eight thousand who were surrounded by the cavalry laid down their arms and surrendered. On hearing of this battle, the Salpinades would not trust themselves to a regular engagement in the field, but sought the protection of their walls. The Romans carried off plunder in all directions from both the Salpinati and Volsinian territories without meeting any resistance. At last the Volsinians, tired of the war, obtained a truce for twenty years on condition that they paid an indemnity for their previous raid and supplied the year's pay for the army. Banishment of Camillus It was in this year that Marcus Caedicius, a member of the plebs, reported to the tribunes that whilst he was in the Via Nova, where the chapel now stands, above the Temple of Vesta, he heard in the silence of the night a voice more powerful than any human voice bidding the magistrates be told that the Gauls were approaching. No notice was taken of this, partly owing to the humble rank of the informant, and partly because the Gauls were a distant and therefore an unknown nation. It was not the monitions of the gods only that were set at naught in face of the coming doom. The one human aid which they had against it, Marcus Furius Camillus, was removed from the city. He was impeached by the plebeian tribune Lucius Apulius for his action with reference to the spoils of Vii, and at the time had just been bereaved of his son. He invited the members of his tribe and his clients, who formed a considerable part of the plebs, to his house and sounded their feelings towards him. They told him that they would pay whatever fine was imposed, but it was impossible for them to acquit him. Thereupon he went into exile, after offering up a prayer to the immortal gods that if he were suffering wrongfully as an innocent man, they would make his ungrateful citizens very soon feel the need of him. He was condemned in his absence to pay a fine of 15,000 asses. End of section 31.